deployed that far in the New Testament church tradition. But our, our text is very short. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they were devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then a little bit later in the church, it says God, in the passage, it says the Lord was adding to the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come and consider this passage from your word, Lord, it's seemingly short, four pieces of what the early church was doing, and yet, Father, it's profound. It brings together so much of what's in the scriptures for your church and and what it is that you seek and desire from us and what blessings you've brought to us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would be with us as we consider this passage for your glory and for your worship. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may remember the movie City Slickers. Uh, And I can't obviously condone everything Hollywood presents as something that I would recommend to you. But if you remember the movie City Slickers, it actually had something that was somewhat profound and does relate to our passage this morning. You may remember the storyline that Mitch and two of his friends, Ed and Phil, were sort of having a midlife crisis. They were sort of in that moment of, you know, is this what I do for the rest of the life? Is this all there is? And so they decided to go on a cattle drive, a two-week cattle drive out in the Midwest from New Mexico to Colorado. And you can imagine riding a horse that far with that many cattle. There's thunderstorms. There's all kinds of things that can happen. But they meet this cowboy. This is his life. This is what he does is this cattle drive. Curly, uh, who not only teaches them to become real cowboys themselves, what it is to, to herd cattle and animals, but to teach them other things about real life. During the drive, Mitch, one of the city slickers, accidentally causes a stampede which destroys the camp. And while searching for stray stray cows, Mitch discovers Curly has sort of a kind nature beneath his gruff exterior. Uh, And um, Mitch offers these words of wisdom. Uh, He says, the secret of life is is this. And, or, or Curly said, the secret of life is this. And Mitch says, your finger? And Curly says, no, this, this one thing. And so Mitch asks, well, what's the one thing? Tell me, what's the secret of life? And Curly says, that's what you've got to figure out. What's that one thing? And in our culture today, our culture would tell us, well, you've got to find your truth. You've got to find the one thing that makes your life make sense. And, And for our world, it could be the job, it could be the home, it could be vacations, it could be, you know, Sinful sex life. The world offers a lot of things that are the one thing that would supposedly make sense of life. But our passage offers the one thing that is the mission statement of the church. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is... When I was candidating here, I presented this as sort of the mission statement of the church. This this is what the church would be about. And I covered them in brief as a whole in the context of Acts 2, 42 through the end of the chapter. What I want to do for the next four Sundays is deep dive into each one of these individually. And so we're going to look this morning 
at The Secret of Life, and I think of the four, if there's a single secret of life or a secret for the church, it is to be devoted to the apostles' doctrine. And I'll define that as we get into it. But you know what the word devotion, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but you, you, you can sort of intuitively know what it is to be devoted to something. I'm, I'm, I was telling the guys yesterday, for a time I was devoted to golf. And once I, in anger and frustration, snapped the head off my putter, I stopped being devoted to golf because I knew that was not going to happen. So I devoted myself to firearms. And then when God took my knees away, I stopped devoting myself to that and, and, and in God's providence and timing. And I've, I've found what's worth devoting my life to is the preaching of God's word. There's actually meaning and significance and import to that. And so uh, we're going to take four weeks. We're going to go through these one by one. Today we're going to consider the Apostles' Doctrine. Next week, fellowship, and we'll work through uh, the, the four of those. Then, Lord willing, we're going to go to a book study. My traditional approach is to study through entire books of the Bible. And I think a good place to start is Genesis. And so I'm certainly welcome. Uh, I welcome comments and discussion and your thoughts about that, but my plan for the moment is the book of Genesis. But let me give you what I'm, I'll, I'll use as a summary statement for what I believe our text is saying. Devoting ourselves to the apostles' doctrine, that phrase in our text, means making the whole word of God our highest authority for all our actions and all our thinking and reasoning and desires. Devoting ourselves to the Apostles' Doctrine means making the whole Word of God our highest authority for all our actions and thinking and reasoning and desires. Now, there are, are, there are numerous authorities. Your boss is going to be one of the authorities that's going to tell you that between 8 and 5, you need to devote yourself to this purpose. Well, even higher, and God says obey your bosses, obey those who have the authority over you. But he also says, I'm still the highest authority. So if your boss asks you to lie to protect the image of the firm, you would say, well, respectfully, sir, ma'am, I, I can't do that. God is my highest authority. He said to tell the truth. And so the word of God is our highest authority for all our actions and thinking and desires. So let me start with the definition of what is the apostles' doctrine. Is that just what they wrote in their epistles? Should we just sort of start at the book of Acts and work to the end of the Bible? Is that what it is to devote ourselves to the Apostles' Doctrine? No. I'll define it this way. The Apostles' Doctrine is Christ's own teaching and explanation in the Gospels about how the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, spoke of him, and then the Apostles' epistles developing and applying that teaching of Christ about the Old Testament and about himself in the Gospels, for believers of the church in successive generations. Now, we know the church began probably Genesis 3.15, the congregation of the Old Testament. But in terms of Acts 2.42, the apostles' doctrine is for the church of that day and in our generation. So let me give that statement more quickly again. The apostles' doctrine is Christ's own teaching and explanation in the Gospels how the Old Testament scriptures spoke of him. And then it's the apostles' epistles, Acts through the end, developing and applying that for believers in the church of following generations. Christ began, uh, turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. I'm not going to 
have you turn a lot. I do use the ESV as, as my text for study, uh, and, and we'll probably say more about that in future days. But it's close enough, the NIV, ESV, KJ, New King James, King James, probably close enough, whatever you're using, you'll get the gist. John chapter 5, Christ begins his earthly ministry and ends his earthly ministry with this teaching about the apostles' doctrine. What Acts 2, after Christ's resurrection and ascension and return to the Father, talks about devoting ourselves to the apostles' doctrine. It's what Jesus, it's how he began his ministry and how he ended his ministry, saying, you need to listen to the Old Testament scriptures for they speak of me. John chapter 5 and uh, we'll start in verse 39. Really, it's just that verse, that one verse. The context here is that the Jew, the Pharisees, the Sadducees are looking to kill Jesus right at the beginning of his earthly ministry for a couple of reasons. Number one, that he made himself to be God. He said, I and my Father are one. And so they were saying, no man can, no man can claim to be God, only the Father is God. And so Jesus was telling them, I am your Messiah, I am the what the Old Testament uh, had prophesied. They're also seeking to kill him because he broke the Sabbath. He helped somebody on Sabbath. He, 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 he did a nice work of mercy and necessity on the Sabbath, and they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes in John 5, 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. At the time when Jesus said this, the scriptures were the Old Testament. The Gospels hadn't been written, and the, the epistles certainly hadn't been written, written. And Jesus is saying, you're searching the scriptures, because it's they that speak about me. You're searching the Old Testament. You're digging through it. And you ought to believe the Old Testament, because it spoke of me. The gospel is the explanation of those Old Testament scriptures. And then Jesus ended his earthly ministry. You don't have to turn there, but Luke 24, 47, if you want to go look at it at a later time. This is the end of Jesus' time on earth. He has risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to the Father. And Jesus goes back again with his disciples, his apostles. And he starts all over again. And John 24, or Luke 24, 47 says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the Apostles' Doctrine is those Old Testament scriptures explained in the Gospels. And Jesus is saying in the Gospels, the Old Testament was all about me. And so we say today, whenever I preach, you know, if I start preaching in Genesis, what I want you to do is to look for and expect and call me on it if ever I don't preach Jesus Christ. From Genesis 1, 1. Christ is there, and we ought to explicate and praise and worship Christ through this. Well, also in the, in the, in the, apostles, the apostles explained that the Christ of the Old Testament is explicated in the Gospels and then explained in the Epistles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. You can turn there if you want. We'll, we'll look at this a couple different ways. But Paul and the other apostles explained in 1 Corinthians 15, and James did it, and John did it, and Peter did it. All the apostles who wrote books that we have in our New Testament canon explained that the Old Testament scriptures were always about Jesus. And Jesus explained in the Gospels that the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, were about him. 
1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in, accord, uh, in accordance to the scriptures. The scriptures of the Old Testament were telling him that Christ died for sin. Paul received this message from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what made him an apostle. He received a message directly from Jesus. And so now Paul is explaining exactly how we've defined, and Lord willing, I hope I've taken my definition of the apostles' doctrine from these scriptures. That Jesus is saying, the Old Testament always talked about me, and I'm explaining to you in the Gospels what it was saying, and now my apostles are going to take those teachings all together comprehensively and explain to you and, and, and lay it out, flesh it out, make it walk on all fours, apply and contextualize, and, and make it make a difference on Thursday for us what, it all, what all has been said. And so we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 15. I wanted to give some examples. That's sort of what the Apostles' Doctrine is. And I'm going to go through these examples real quick um, because then I've got some quick application and we'll be done. But I want to give some examples. We'll start right here in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then the passage goes on there. All of our gospel is in the Old Testament. It's there. And Jesus explains in the gospels. So this is one of the evidences from the New Testament and the apostles saying that the apostles' doctrine, what we're to be devoting ourselves to, should include what was in the Old Testament. That the Bible is one comprehensive whole. Old Testament, gospels, New Testament, there's not different dispensations and different ways of slicing the pie. And, and there's, there's not different ways of looking. It's not God had one, one economy over here and another economy over there. God has always had the same message. And we'll talk a little bit about that tonight, Lord willing. But Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scripture? Psalm 16, among others. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And we know, under the Jewish system, corruption occurred on the fourth day. This was their understanding of when a body died, how the natural processes of a dead body, corruption would sort of happen on the fourth day. You will not abandon my soul to the grave. You won't even let me see corruption, the psalmist told us. That was the script, among other scriptures. That was one of the scriptures that the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, they should have picked up on to know that this Jesus who said, the Father will raise me up on the third day, that this is Jesus, that it's one comprehensive whole Old Testament Gospels, New Testament. More examples. Christ explaining the Old Testament about himself. We all know Genesis 1. You probably don't even have to turn there. In the beginning, God created in heaven and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So right there, we have two members of the Trinity. God, and from that, at that point in time, when Genesis 1 is given, it was presumed that was the Father. And the Spirit of God hovered over the, the face of the waters. So we have the two members of the Trinity, the first and the third. 
Well, what does Jesus do in John 1.1? John writing his epistle. John's epistle is particularly focused on explaining who Jesus Christ is. John 1.1. In the beginning, same phrasing, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. What it's saying is that Jesus is creator. And theologically, we can look at the scriptures and we see both the Father and the Son are sort of identified as the creator. But it's saying that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. He pre-existed time. He's eternal. Jesus, this Jesus we could touch and our hands have handled of the word of life. He is very God. He pre-existed. He, he existed with the Father from eternity. And he was himself and is himself God. And to call him the logos, that's the Greek word for the word Word In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Jesus Christ is that most profound, ultimate expression, communication from God the Father of who God is. Jesus is the, is the way we best understand. He gives us the most handles to grab hold of that we can understand God. And Jesus was saying... I was there in the beginning with God. It's explained in the Old Testament. Father, Son, Spirit, our doctrine of the Trinity. Christ has created the Logos. Another example. Mark chapter 12 and verse 10. You don't have to turn there. Jesus asked the question, Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's familiar enough to us. But Jesus is asking, Didn't you read the Old Testament? He's asking the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the Jewish people of his day. The fascinating part is the average folk of Jesus' day are the one who latched on to the message. It was the religious folk that, that hemmed and hawed and you know broke out their, their Hebrew glossary and went to the... But Jesus is saying, didn't you read... What is, he, what is he talking about? He's talking about Psalm 118. He's talking about Isaiah 28. Both of those scriptures mention Christ as the chief cornerstone, the, the, the most important stone that sets the rest of the parameters of the building out. To be the chief cornerstone, uh, those of you that are in construction, if you're familiar, or if you're familiar with how construction used to happen, the first stone that they would set was the cornerstone. And the walls of the building would develop at right angles out from the cornerstone. And as Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church, Jesus Christ is the one who defines what the church ought to be and do and look like and focus on and devote itself to. Matthew 26. When Jesus is, is, is approached by a mob looking to crucify him and Pat, Peter whips out his sword and slices off Malchus' ear. Got to give props to Peter. That's not easy to do. But it was, it was written by Matthew that this was according to the scriptures, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Again, the Old Testament explained who Jesus was and what his ministry would be and what he was about. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. The promises to Abraham, in you every nation of the earth will be blessed. The, the, the picture of David, of the best of human kings, picturing the kinghood of Christ, the perfect sovereign, just 
holy, gracious, and merciful. And David made his mistakes, but he pictured the Christ that would come as king. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Moses saying, a prophet like me will come, and you'll actually listen to him. You could hear Moses' frustration. You don't listen to me, but there's a prophet coming, and you're going to listen to him. Jesus, the Logos, the final word from God. The virgin birth, Christ's life and ministry, his death and resurrection, him as head of the church, all in the Old Testament. And so the apostles' doctrine is those Old Testament scriptures that Christ explained in the Gospels, that the epistles written by the apostles explain to us one cohesive whole. But it's also the apostles' epistles. It's not just what Jesus said in the Gospels. The book of Acts, really, if you, I preached through it uh, uh, in the last 10 years. If you look at the book of Acts and you study through it as a whole, maybe if you read through it in a, in a week or so, it's the apostles reasoning from the Old Testament scriptures that Christ is the Messiah. That's what the book of Acts is. It's just that simple. Reasoning from the Old Testament that Christ is that Messiah that was promised that should come. He was Moses' prophet. He was the Davidic king, the perfect king. He was the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent. And so all of that goes together. Paul in Romans and 1 Corinthians and Galatians and 1 Timothy all references the Old Testament as its source material. Three times in the book of James, three times by Peter in his two epistles, reference the Old Testament, specifically mention the Old Testament as their source material. And so again, our, our definition of the Apostles' Doctrine, I think it works. It's Christ's own teaching and explanation in the Gospels, how the Old Testament scriptures speak of him, and the Apostles' epistles developing and applying that for believers in the church of following generations. Okay. God willing, that's good theology. That's what, our, that's what Acts 2.42, a devotion to the apostles' doctrine, says. If our Christianity is but head knowledge, we don't do anything with it. If it doesn't change us, we're going to become like the Pharisees. We're going to be those egg-headed know-it-all Christians who condemn everybody else but never look into their own lives. So I wanted to make some application. You probably know 2 Timothy 2.15, and you probably know it in the King James Version. Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman not needing to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to show yourselves approved to God, a workman rightly dividing the word of God, that you, that you not have to stand before God in shame. Let me read it to you with a little bit of explication in what the Greek words mean. Hasten to show yourselves approved to God. Labor hard to show yourselves approved to God. A worker that doesn't need to be ashamed as we stand before the Heavenly Father because we are rightly understanding and applying the word of God. The idea here is that the apostles' doctrine is work. It calls us to work. It calls us to do something. It calls us to think carefully. It calls us to evaluate our lives. It causes us to work hard to understand it. We 
work to understand what a scripture means. We, why we go to Sunday sermons. Why we do personal Bible studies. Why we listen to other good preachers. Uh, Vadi Balkum this week. I was listening to him a little bit last night. Oh my goodness, man. The man was on fire. Uh, but listen to good preaching. Do the work. Do, and, and there's lots of good preachers out there. I don't, uh, you know, there's lots that I can mention. But the Apostles' Doctrine is going to be work. To understand, to study, to hasten, be diligent. I mean, you know, we get out of here and we all hasten down to get to be first in line at the restaurant we want to eat at. Be that hungry for God's word. Make it a priority. Yeah, I, I, I want to go golfing, but I haven't been in God's word today. I'm going to get in God's word first and then I'll go play golf. Shooting, whatever the, the a hobby or interest is. The contrast is that lies are easy. The apostles' doctrine is work, but lies are easy. The things that Satan wants you to believe instead of the word of God, they're easy. They're, they're fun. Let me give a couple of, of examples. There is no God. Atheism. Agnosticism. Hey Amen. Look, if there's no God, I can live how I want. That's awesome. Lies are easy. They free us up. There is no creator. As our schools, as our culture teaches Darwinism, uh, a full atheistic Darwinism that completely eliminates God from creation, it sets a platform for our students and for ourselves. We can believe whatever we want. We can live however we want. We don't owe God an obedience. We didn't create us and make us and, and therefore has a right to speak to us. Another lie from our culture. Marriage is marriage. Any type of marriage is, is a good marriage. Now, in the civil authority, I understand that they can define marriage however they want. The church is different than the state. But in the scriptures, for the believer, God has defined marriage as between one man and one woman, and he intends it for a lifetime. Now, if people sin, and divorce sometimes is necessary. Moses wrote about that and said, these are things that are necessary sometimes. But God said, I define marriage. For, for, the, for the church built on the cornerstone of Christ, we take his definition. Another one. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. That's a, that's a great that's, that, that is super com So I can work, you know, as long as I need to work to make the money I want. And, 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 and you know, I, I never have to. It, it, it's the devil that wants me to be sick and poor. And God wants me to be healthy and, well, and rich. And it frees us up from the providence of God that sometimes says, I'm going to use your poverty and your sickness to make you like my son. One more, follow your heart. Worst advice that's ever been given in the history of mankind. Because my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. God saw in Genesis 6 that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil, nonstop. Do not follow your heart. Follow the cornerstone. Follow the logos, the truth, the word of God. And so, in our actions... Um, what we do and say and desire in the application here is our thinking and our desires and our logic. Let it be shaped by the word of God. Be diligent. Hasten. 
be in the word, know what it says about how I would think and how I would reason and what I would desire and long for, know what it says and let that shape us. And particularly our thinking. It all begins with our thinking and desires. Our actions come out of those thinking and desires. And what does God say? The two great commandments? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Begin every reasoning process for every action or desire we would have with the idea that in this action and in this desire and in this thinking, I am going to love my God. I'm going to be thankful for him as my my creator. I'm going to acknowledge that he made me. And he has a right to tell me what to do. And he's only good. And he's only kind. And he only ever requires what actually is ultimately good for us. And secondly, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. If we'll follow this, our thinking and our actions, our desires, our reactions, reading a book called Reactivity, Paul David Tripp, he makes the point we live in a culture that is reactive. As soon as somebody does something to us, bam, we, we land on them, we, we fire off some mad email, we, we make some ugly comment. And what Tripp is calling us to do is to, do, rather than be reactive, to act. And that is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. With those two pocket-sized, portable, take-everywhere-with-us rules, we will understand the Apostles' Doctrine, and it will frame all of our thinking and all of our actions and all of our desires. Um, and so I would say, if there is one secret to life, and, and particularly in the church, but really for all of life, it is to vote ourselves to the Apostles' Doctrine, to the Word of God, the whole Word of God. Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, Epistles, Psalms, Genesis... Leviticus, imagine that. All of it. It's all of there. All of it's there to shape us. So in the next three weeks, we'll go through a devotion to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have the deacons uh, hand out a couple of these. Tonight, we're going to come back and do some study questions. Uh, I was thinking about handing these out easy, earlier, but then that would, I'd have given you all the answers. What I want you to do is take these home today, think about these, read these study questions, and let's get back together tonight in more than another lecture sermon. We're going to have a discussion. We're going to make application of what we just considered from the Word of God. Now, in future weeks, I'll I'll probably get more into the preaching. Um, Between packing and moving and being examined by Presbytery and unpacking and getting a house set up, quite honestly, I didn't have time to prepare a Sunday night sermon. So instead, we're going we're gonna to go back. Why rush on to new stuff if we don't have a good handle on what we just studied? Why? Well, we're going to try to do that some tonight. So we're going to sing. You know, we'll follow the order of services given in the bulletin. But we're going we're gonna to have a discussion. And this is going to be an opportunity for you to answer from these questions and, and give your, make your personal application. The beauty of that is for you to consider it for yourself. What does this mean for me? The other beauty of that, the second beauty of that, is that when you answer that question for yourself and you communicate it in the congregation, you're going to bless somebody else. Somebody else is going to hear what you say, say, yeah, yeah, that's it. I I didn't think of that. 
third blessing is that God will be praised from your lips. And so we're going to act like a congregation. We're going to act like a church and do these study questions tonight. So um, let's close our service for right now. Um, let me get back to the, the um, order of service. Let me pray, and then we'll sing together number 705. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you, Father. You haven't left us to guess or wonder. You've laid it out so plain and clear, so accessible, um, it's so logical. It makes sense. It, 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 it tracks with what we see about life. And so, Father, help us to grasp, grasp hold of it, and in doing so, grasp hold of you. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and sing uh, number 705. If I could get the deacons to come grab these and be able to hand these out um, at the door, that would be great. And uh, thank you very much. So get one, grab one of these on your way out if you're able to be with us tonight. But right now, let's sing number 705, that I know whom I have believed.